We're going to continue now with our study of Paul's letter to the church at Rome, and we now are in the 10th chapter, and this evening I will be reading uh, beginning at verse 5. and reading through uh, verse 15. My glasses are such that I can't quite read the verse numbers carefully. Alas, now for the congregation to stand for the reading of the Word of God. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law, the man who does Those things shall live by them, but the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down from above. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the Scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. This is the Word of God for the people of God. Please be seated. Let us pray. Again, O Lord, we look to you for the help of the Holy Spirit, indeed the Spirit of truth, to condescend to our weakness and the fragile way in which we hear those truths that come from your lips. As we contemplate further on the riches of the gospel that has been set forth in this epistle, We ask tonight that you would pierce our souls with thy word, for we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Last week we concluded with the beginning portion of chapter 10, where Paul lamented the reality that his kinsmen, according to the flesh, Israel, had a zeal for the things of God but not according to knowledge. They fail to understand the primary 
doctrine of justification that was not a novelty set forth in the New Testament, but was set forth early on in the pages of the Old Testament, particularly in the life of the patriarch Abraham, that justification before a holy God is by faith and by faith alone. And so tonight we pick it up at verse 5 where Paul says Moses writes about the righteousness that is of the law. The man who does these things shall live by them, but the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. Now, Paul's reasoning here is a little bit obscure at first glance. His uh, thoughts seem somewhat oblique to us because as he's already rejected the idea that we could be justified through the works of the law and we need to embrace that righteousness which is by faith, then he asks this question, who will ascend into heaven to bring Christ down or who will go into the depths of the abyss to bring Christ up from the dead? Now, what in the world does that have to do with the doctrine of justification? Well, what Paul is setting forth here is, are two ideas that represent manifest impossibilities that it is just as impossible for a person to be justified by the law or by their own works as it would be for a human being to ascend into the highest heaven and drag the Messiah from heaven down to earth. The only way the Messiah can descend from heaven is if the Lord God omnipotent sends him. And that is exactly what God the Father did in sending the Son into the world to be our mediator. And it's also equally impossible for any human being, by strength of their own virtue or righteousness, to descend into the pit of hell, into the depths of the abyss of death, as it were, and bring Christ back from the dead. We recall that when Christ was executed, that the disciples fled as sheep without a shepherd. They were in despair because they knew that it was totally beyond their power to bring Jesus back from the grave. And basically what the apostle is saying is is it is just as impossible for a person to be saved through the works of the law as it would be for us to think that we could bring Jesus back from the dead or actually bring him down from heaven in the first place. Now, in stark contrast to that manifest impossibility and great difficulty, he says, but what does the Word of God say? And then he quotes the passage, the Word is near you, In your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith which we preach. Now, when he says that the word of God 
that he's preaching, that word about justification by faith is near you and in your mouth, as it were, what he's saying is that the truth that he's proclaiming in this epistle, throughout the apostolic ministry, declaring the gospel of justification by faith alone, that that central truth is not a truth that is so high, so abstract, or so deep, and so profound that it is beyond the ken of our understanding. Paul is saying here, it does not require a Ph.D. in theology to understand the gospel. We are not Gnostics who believe that the gospel can only be understood by some intellectual elite group of scholars. No, Paul says, the gospel that he's declaring is near to you. And that's a Hebrew idiom to say that it is within your grasp. It's right in front of you. It's not removed in the distance. It's not so difficult that you can't understand it. But the word of faith that Paul is declaring is simple. Now, I've said to you throughout our study of Romans on more than one occasion that to understand the doctrine of justification by faith alone, which is at the very heart and soul of the gospel itself, is not a difficult thing. A child can understand it. To get it right on a theology exam does not qualify you as a genius. It's simple. Ah, but to get it in the bloodstream, to get it pumping through the veins of your body where you believe it with all of your soul is something that takes a life of concentrated study of the Word of God, of hearing the Word of God day in and day out that you may embrace that which God has put right in front of you, right in your mouth for your salvation. And so Paul is reminding us here of the ease with which we can understand this message. And he boils it down to this in verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, notice that Paul conjoins two elements here. He doesn't just say, if you confess with your lips, if you profess with your mouth, you will be saved. Every Christian is called to profess their faith. But again, as I've labored tirelessly through these many months of Romans, no one has ever been justified by a profession of faith. We are to profess the faith, but the profession alone without the presence of authentic faith attending it will justify no one. And I don't tire in repeating that because I say one of the great dangers and perils 
of the church in our day is the way in which we do evangelism, where we're so zealous to win people to Christ and to persuade them of the truth of the gospel and of giving their lives to Jesus. We prime the pump, as it were. We're not satisfied with proclaiming the gospel and allowing the Holy Spirit to take that truth of the gospel and pierce human hearts with it, but we want to give our aid and assistance to it to make sure that our evangelistic statistics are good. And so, we have come up with all kinds of techniques. You're you're familiar with them. The technique at the General Crusade where you have the altar call and you call people if they're going to respond to the gospel to come to the front of the church or the the, uh, uh, Colosseum or wherever the mission is being held. Or we ask people to raise their hand. I see that hand for the person who's making a profession of faith. Or we ask people, pray this prayer after me or sign this card. All of these different techniques are designed to urge people to take that step to finalize their commitment to Christ. And in and of themselves, as I've said to you before on many occasions, nothing wrong with that. Unless you think that by walking down an aisle, by raising your hand, by signing your card, or even saying the sinner's prayer, that that will get you into the kingdom of God. Then you're in serious trouble because you have to understand that the profession of faith alone will not ever justify you. Again, it is the possession of faith, not the profession of it, that is the necessary condition for our justification. That's why I'm sure Paul doesn't just say, if you confess with your mouth, you will be saved. But he adds to that condition, if you confess with your mouth and what? Believe with your heart. You know why he says that? Why doesn't he say, believe with your mind? One of my pet peeves that I uh, would get cantankerous about in the classroom with my seminary students over the years is when I would ask for a student's opinion on a particular question, and they would answer me by saying, well, Professor, I feel like such and such is the truth. And I said, really? I didn't ask you for how you feel about it, whether the truth excites you or bores you or whatever it does. I'm asking you what you think, because conviction of truth is not a sensual matter. In the first instance, it has to do with the assent of the mind. But yet we live in such a sensuous culture that people always say, I feel, when what they mean is, I think. But that's enough of my pet peeve. Paul here understands that it's impossible for somebody to have a persuasion mentally that never gets to the heart. Back in the days of the Reformation, when the Reformers were proclaiming the doctrine of justification by faith alone, the great objection that was raised against that doctrine was that the Reformers were teaching a doctrine of cheap grace 
or easy believeism, where they say, well, anybody can say that they believe in Jesus, but that's no manifestation of true godliness. And so the question became, what are the necessary ingredients of saving faith? Luther, for example, following the teaching in uh, the writing of James, where James says that faith without works is dead, and the question that James raises is, is, can a dead faith justify anybody? And he answers that question emphatically in the negative. So Luther would say the only kind of faith that justifies is a fides viva, a living faith, a vital faith, a faith that manifests itself in a life of obedience to God. And so, again, in defining the necessary ingredients, the three basic elements that were set forth by the Reformers is that saving faith has three necessary elements. It has, first of all, what's called the noti or notitia. That's the data. That for us to be justified, there has to be a content to the faith that we embrace. Now, the cultural adage notwithstanding, you've heard it said many times, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. Let me suggest to you, dear friends, that it matters eternally and profoundly what you believe. A person can put their trust and faith in the devil, and they can be sincere about it. And all that will do is sincerely send them to hell forever. There is no comfort in a faith that has an object that is false. And so saving faith requires information, knowledge, content that we believe. In addition, we not only have to have that information, but the Reformer said there has to be a sensus or an intellectual assent to the truth of the data. So if I can say to you, I'm telling you about the resurrection of Jesus or the atonement of Jesus, and I say, do you understand this information, you understand what I'm describing here when I talk to you about the death and resurrection of Jesus, and you say, yes, I understand what you're talking about. And I said, let me try to persuade you that these things really happened in time and space. Jesus really did have an atoning death, and that He really did come back from the grave. And I say, are you persuaded of that? And I, I get you to the place where you say, yes, I believe that. I believe it happened. So far, all that does is qualify you to be a demon, because every demon from hell knows the information, and he knows that the information is true. That's why Lutheran reformers say the data and even the intellectual assent to the data is not enough, that that intellectual affirmation of the truth claims of the gospel must be embraced with a personal trust and affection for that truth, which no demon will ever give to the gospel. That's why Paul says it's not enough to believe it in your head. You have to believe it in your heart. Again, I've mentioned this earlier in another context, that the Old Testament teaches that as a man 
thinks in his heart, so is he. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And again, it's not because the Old Testament prophet has confused organs of thinking with organs of feeling. They know that the organ for, think, for thought in the human person is the brain, not the heart. So why do they say, as a man thinketh in his heart? Because they understood this, as I've just mentioned, that you can say, I agree with something intellectually, but that it never gets from the mind to the soul, to the core of your being. You know, one of the things that scares me to death about preaching, and I know those of you who are preachers in here will relate to what I'm about to say. My job is to prepare the message each week for the morning and for the evening service, to study the text of Scripture, and to be a delivery man, to take the text from the Bible and communicate it to you. But you realize that every time I prepare a sermon for you, I have to prepare it for me. And at the end of the day, I have to look in the mirror and say, R.C., do you believe what you proclaimed today? And sometimes I worry about that because I say, well, yeah, I believe it in my head. And then I want to say to myself, well, yeah, but do you really believe it? Do you believe it with your life? Or is it just an exercise in theology? Boy, that is an extremely dangerous pattern for ministers and for teachers that we never get past our minds and get it down into the bloodstream and into our hearts. And Paul says here, I'm talking about the heart. If you believe in your heart, in the core of your being, in Christ and that God has raised Him from the dead, confess with your mouth, believe in your hearts, then Paul can say with absolute categorical assurance, if you, those two things are true about you, the third thing follows as necessarily by resistless logic as any syllogism yields its conclusion that you shall be saved. I just talked to somebody this week who was asking the question, well, you know, I've been struggling with Romans and do- struggling with this doctrine of, of, uh, of election, and how can I know that I'm saved? if I'm elect. I say, that's what you're elected to. You're elected to salvation. And instead of worrying about all of the intricacies and the difficulties that attend the doctrine of election that we've looked at these many, many months, let's get down to the most simple principle. If you confess with your mouth and believe with your heart, you shall be saved. You won't do that unless you're elect, I know. We've already labored that. But I can cut the Gordian knot here and just bring it down to this question. Do you believe in your heart? Are you trusting 
in Christ and in Christ alone. If you are, then, dear friend, I can give you the full assurance of your salvation. Verse 10, Paul says, For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the Scripture says, Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. That is, that if you put your trust in Christ truly, from the heart, you have no need of any future embarrassment. You will not be put to shame for having held to a false hope and have devoted your life to a myth. But if you have trusted Christ in your heart, your future will be without embarrassment and without shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon Him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now be careful. Now Paul makes that statement within a broader context and even within the immediate context here. He's not saying that anybody who hollers for Jesus in their moment of trial will be saved. We know that the Lord warns us that when He appears and when the wrath is manifest, people who have not repented of their sins, they'll be screaming for the mountains to fall and the hills to fall upon them and cover them. And people will also say in that moment of crisis, Jesus, Jesus, help me, save me. Too late. What Paul's making a statement about here is that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord in the terms of which he's just explained it, that is that the call comes from the heart, that the call is genuine, that it is an authentic reaching of the heart for the Savior, that person will not be denied. Again, that's why I try to put people at rest who say to me, I don't know if I'm numbered among the elect. Well, I can tell them this. You may be elect, you may not be elect, but you cannot know for sure that you're not elect until you die. Because you may be one like the thief on the cross who in your fleeting breath on your deathbed is brought to the Lord through the mysterious work of God the Holy Spirit. But again, we don't have to work through all of those intricacies of doctrine if we understand that if you sincerely call upon the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. If A, B will follow. We can talk forever about what it takes for you to do A and what would have to happen before you would call upon the Lord earnestly and honestly, but I can cut it down Again, use Occam's razor, slice it to its core, and say the simple thing is if you call upon the Lord sincerely, you will be saved. So right now, please don't be worried about the intricacies of the other doctrine. Now Paul gives this series of related questions that are very important. Some of you recall when I preached at our mission conference, I preached from this text because it's a text that bears so heavily on the mission outreach of the church.
Paul's asking now the how questions. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of great things. Well, this series of how questions is found, if you've noticed, in chapter 10 of Romans. Now, if you've been following, again, through this entire book, and even if you haven't, it would be safe to make the assumption that chapter 10 comes after chapter 9. Am I going too fast? In fact, it comes very shortly after chapter 9. It's the very next chapter after chapter 9, and chapter 9 was filled with the hard sayings about divine election. And I think it's so appropriate that chapter 10 follows chapter 9 because it addresses one of the most common objections raised by people about the biblical doctrine of election. And when I talked to you at the mission conference, I related a story of an experience I had in seminary, which I hope you won't forget, because I haven't, I never will. When we were in a class with our professor, and he had been teaching the doctrine of predestination and we were seated in the, in, in the front of the, it was a seminar on Jonathan Edwards, and we were seated in a semicircle, and there were 18 of us in the room. And he said, gentlemen, if the doctrine of election is true, why should we be engaged in evangelism? Nobody raised their hand to offer an answer. And so he systematically, seriatim, began at one side of the semicircle and began to interrogate each one of the students to give a response. And I breathed a sigh of relief because he started on the left side of the, of the uh, semicircle, and I was on the extreme right end. So I had 17 points of buffer between myself and the relentless interrogation of the professor. So he says to the first guy in the front, he says, if predestination is true, why should we be involved in evangelism? And the student says, beats me. I've always wondered about that. Goes to the second guy, and he says, well, what about it? And the second person said, I have no earthly idea. Next guy said, well, I would think evangelism would be a Herculean waste of time if it's all already settled in eternity by the divine decrees. None of those answers satisfied the professor, and so he kept going relentlessly around the semicircle. I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. Pretty soon my buffer was disintegrating. And he came to me and he said, Well, Mr. Sproul, what do you think? And sheepishly I said, Well, I know this isn't what you're looking for. I know the answer has to be far more profound than this, but, you know, after all, One of the reasons why we still should be engaged in evangelism is, you know, Jesus does command us to do it. Here's why I'll never forget it. 
He looked at me and he said, yes, Mr. Sproul. And what could possibly be a more insignificant reason to do evangelism than that Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, the Savior of your soul, your personal Lord commands you to do it. Oh, I would have been much better off if I would have said, beats me. I don't know. (laughs) But then he went beyond that. He said, but it's not enough to be engaged in evangelism in light of election merely out of a sense of duty. Don't you understand that evangelism is one of the greatest privileges that God gives to the church. Then he went on to explain how that God could have preached His Word from the clouds in His own voice without any human participation. But, the Bible says, not only did he have a plan of salvation that involved election, but he has chosen not only the ends, but the means for those ends, and he has chosen chiefly the foolishness of preaching as the means by which he will gather his elect to himself. And in choosing the foolishness of preaching, he gives us the unspeakable privilege of participating in this majestic program of redemption that he has conceived from the foundation of the world. I mentioned before, no preacher is indispensable. The cemeteries of our world are filled with indispensable people. Those of you who are preachers know as well as I do that God doesn't need you to accomplish His purposes of redemption, and God certainly doesn't need me. He didn't need Isaiah. He didn't need Jeremiah. He didn't need the Apostle Paul. But he's given us the most sacred vocation possible to be those who carry this treasure in earthly vessels. So Paul proceeds with his reasoning here. So they call on him in whom they have not believed. Nobody's going to put their trust in a Savior whom they do not believe is capable of saving them. When I have a plumbing problem, I don't call the grocer because I have no reason to believe that the grocer can fix my problem. Likewise, when I face the biggest, deepest problem of human existence, the problem of how I shall escape from the wrath that is to come from a holy God, 
Why would I put any trust or confidence or call upon somebody unless I first believed that they were able to redeem me? And so it's a, a pre-condition, pre, uh, a necessary condition to call upon him that they first believe on him. And then he says, how shall they believe on him of whom they've not heard? That's not enough to say to somebody, what you have to do to be saved is believe in Jesus, because that person may turn around and say to you, who's that? Never heard of him. There are millions of people in this world today who have never heard the name of Jesus. And people who have never heard the name of Jesus are not going to put their trust in Jesus. They're not going to call upon Jesus because they can't possibly believe in Jesus because they don't know anything about Jesus. Remember what I said earlier, saving faith requires data, information. That's why the church is commanded to go to every corner of the world and make that message plain and known to all people. Because how can they call upon one that they don't believe? How can they believe one of whom they've never heard? He continues in the series. How should they hear without a preacher? Well, you know what the answer to that question is. How shall they hear without a preacher? They won't. They're not going to hear anything about Jesus unless somebody tells them about Jesus. Nobody's going to believe a gospel they've never heard. And without a preacher, they will never hear it. And how shall they preach, he goes on, unless they are sent? The Latin word for send is missio, from which we get the word mission. That's why we have missionaries, because missionaries don't just go on their own. They are sent. We see it throughout the pages of the Old Testament that God will anoint a prophet. He will put his word in the prophet's mouth, and then he sends him to the people. And missionaries cannot go unless somebody supports them, and sends them. And it is not everybody's responsibility in the church to be a missionary, but everybody's member, every member of the church is responsible to make sure that the missionary activity gets done. We all have a part to play in that endeavor. And so Paul then quotes from Isaiah these words, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. The full quote from the Old Testament is, how beautiful on the mountain are the feet of those who bring good tidings or who bring the gospel and who publish peace. Let me ask you this question. Does the name Phipides mean anything to you? Anyone? You heard of him? When did he live? Where? 
exactly in the 5th century B.C. when the Greeks were at war with the Persians. Three great historic battles. The Battle of Salamis, the one on the sea. The Battle of Thermopylae, the one at the pass where a handful of men held off a whole army. And then the Battle of the Plain, and the name of the plain was Marathon. And Phidides was the runner commissioned to take the message from the battlefield back to the city of Athens. And he ran the entire distance. And guess how far it was? 26 miles. The distance of the modern race that we call the marathon in honor of that occasion. And this man ran all the way from the plain into the city of Athens to bring the gospel, the good news of the Greek victory at Marathon. The image that Isaiah uses is one that is taken from the watchtower among the Jewish people, that when the soldiers would go out into the field into battle, and those back in the city would be worried and concerned about the outcome of the battle, and they awaited breathlessly for word of what had taken place. They didn't have CNN there live broadcasting pictures back. The only way they would know is if a messenger would come from the battlefield and let the people know whether the outcome was victory or defeat. And those who were positioned in the watchtower looking out into the distance could tell long before they could hear the voice of the messenger whether the message was good news or bad news. And you know how they could tell? By their feet. In the distance, if they saw the feet of the messenger moving in the survival shuffle where the feet were hardly lifted off the ground, they knew in advance that the man was overcome with despair and was bringing bad news. But when they looked into the distance and they saw the feet of the messenger making the dust fly from the floor of the earth, they knew that the message was gospel. It was good news. And they could tell the good news when they saw the feet flying on the mountain. So they said, how beautiful, how beautiful on the mountain." are the feet of those who bring good tidings, who publish peace. I know that the person who led me to Christ, the person who brought me to faith, was the third person of the Trinity. It was God the Holy Spirit. No mortal has the ability to bring anyone to faith. Yet, God worked through a human instrument, a man who told me about Jesus on September the 13th, 1957. I'll never forget it. And I am eternally grateful to that person, not because he had the power to change my heart, but because God enlisted him for this sacred task. And this man 
told me the gospel. So as long as I live, in my eyes, his feet will be beautiful. So Paul answers the question, if election is true, why should we preach? Not simply as a matter of duty, but because God gives us this blessed privilege to be those whose feet are beautiful in the eyes of those who hear and respond to the gospel. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for the sweetness of that gospel that we have heard again and again. We pray that you would seal it in our hearts, that the simple conditions of confession of our mouths and believing in our hearts may be fully met within us, that our salvation would be sure. We thank you, Father, that it is impossible for us to ascend into heaven to bring Christ down or to descend into the abyss to bring Christ up. But we thank you for that word that is near to us within our grasp that you have given to us for our hearts. We ask you this and we pray for you. Thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.